How wonderful to have Chris Hatcher on the Wine Show Australia. Good morning to you, Hatch. Good morning, Richard, and good morning, Jill. How are you? We are very, very well, and all the better for chatting with you, Hatch. Yes. No, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's a bit well, more uh, technologically correct than the last time we did one of these hatch on my instagram show that was uh, that was a bit of a dodgy one but this is a bit more professional i reckon uh, very good yes taking it up a notch <laughs> oh definitely so, chris the reason um that uh well of course we, we want you on because of who you are and uh, and for our listeners benefits um we will get you to give an overview of your very prestigious career to date um but we're also really really interested to hear about your new i think just launched in july a hatch wine so your own brand and label um so but should we start with just giving an overview of your career to date uh well yes it's been a long one uh <laughs> that's, that's good that's good yeah so um next oh, 2024 will be my 50th vintage so uh it's been, wow. been a long time Amazing. Uh, i consider myself to be extremely fortunate because I get paid for my hobby. Yeah. So uh, Me too. I get, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I, yeah. I get paid, paid to do that, which is a lot of my friends have uh, decided to retire when they've got to my age, but uh, I've uh, jumped in the deep end and decided to do my own brand, which uh, I've been, been thinking about for doing for, for quite some time. And uh, obviously over, over a 50-year career of had a lot of contacts and and a lot of friends both mm. growing grapes and and making wine so uh i'm i'm uh, using some of those friendships to um to uh help make wines and uh to me it's a very exciting thing to uh to be getting into but just to get back on my career uh, it's quite uh, an interesting story in the sense that i grew up in a methodist family with no alcohol right so, so my dad uh, actually went through the Methodist ministry, um, but didn't didn't continue on with that. But still, uh, on Sunday mornings we used to always go to Sunday school and all those things. Mm. And I was told that there were three bad things in life: one was gambling, two was alcohol, and uh, three you had to be faithful. I've been married for fifty years. Next year. I don't gamble, but I failed the alcohol one. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't see it as failing. I think you've actually succeeded there. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, very much so. So I was always uh, interested in science. When I was a young lad, um, I guess I, I started my fermentation uh, exercise or experience making ginger beer. And mm -hmm. uh, so, so I used to, when I was about 12, I used to make ginger beer until one time I put the bottles in the uh, mum's freezer and uh, happened to blow them up. Uh, so that was the end of the ginger beer making. <laughs> but the other thing that really interested me about wine, my sister's 10 years older than me and she won a bottle of, actually it was Orlando Star Wine. Hey. And, yeah. Yeah, in a raffle and it used to sit in our cellar. And uh, because my parents were good Methodists, they never threw anything away. Yeah. Uh, so I'd sat in the cellar and I was fascinated by this thing that I wasn't allowed to have and it was evil and all those things. So when I got a little bit older, uh, I thought, well, maybe the things that mum and dad told me were bad might be worth having a look at and make my own yeah. mind up. <laughs> and, there might uh, be something in this. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I enjoyed wine. And, um, and then I was lucky enough, I studied a science degree at Adelaide Uni, so 
my interests were biochemistry, uh, organic chemistry and microbiology. And uh, I started a science degree and at the end of my first year, I ran out of money. And uh, I was lucky enough that I got a job at the Australian Wine Research Institute. Right. And I worked there for a year. Uh, absolutely loved the industry. I used to do what they call extension. So we'd go to wineries and help them out with problems. So uh, went back to uni, finished my degree, got a job actually doing research and development in the Barossa and uh, just love the winemaking aspect. And uh, so I studied uh, winemaking at Wagga, finished that, and then uh, I've been a winemaker ever since. And uh, yeah, no, it's been great fun. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's one of those careers that you get great reward for what you do, um, to see people enjoy it. And to to go out into a restaurant and see people drinking your wine is uh, is quite a, a great thing. And now I'm doing my own thing to have them actually drinking hatch and doing, <laughs> going to get better buzz. Well, there we go. That's the perfect segue into tell us all about it. I mean, it's a very new thing. I'm, I'm sure you've been thinking about it for a long time, but um, tell us all about it. What can we expect? Yeah, well, I guess uh, over my career, quite often, well, more than quite often, a lot of times people have said to me, oh, why don't you do your own wine? And I said, look, making wine's really easy. Selling it's hard, yeah. <laughs> and that's the reality of it. I mean, yeah. that that side of it's, uh, is quite difficult. But interestingly, my daughter uh, wanted to be a winemaker, but she wasn't particularly good at science. So she's been working in marketing and wine ever since she left university. Um, and my son did viticulture. Uh, so we've sort of got the three things in winemaking, viticulture, yeah. and, and marketing. All so- bases covered. Yeah, and uh, so Katie, my daughter, about seven years ago, tried to talk me into doing it, and obviously I was working for for Wolf Blast at the time, and and I said, look, I'll help you out, but I I can't, you know, do it other than using my name in Hatch, and then then her as the maker, and then she got breast cancer, and and that was the end of that. So it, it got shelved, and then um, I thought if I if I didn't do it now, I'd never do it. So, uh, so I'm, I'm jumping into it, and it's a little bit different. What I'm going to do is is compare and contrast regions. So the same variety in the best regions. So I'm going to release on first uh, of September. I'll have a 23 uh, Watervale Riesling and a mm. Flaxman's Valley Riesling from Eden Valley. So people can compare, you know, what I consider to be the two classic regions for Riesling in Australia from one producer and then I'm mm. going to do the same with Shiraz so uh, a mop of Shiraz from the Barossa and mm. I'm still working on the McLaren Vale one but a, 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 a sort of sub-regional McLaren Vale Shiraz as well so it gives people the option to see those and, and down the track I'll expand it if it's successful, of course, uh, <laughs> and I'll do Chardonnay, perhaps from Adelaide Hills and Tassie or Adelaide Hills, yeah. Margaret Roof, that, that Good. sort of thing. Yeah, so nice mm. counterpoint was... between the two things. And yeah. I, just... was, I was hoping that you were going to say something outside of South Australia as well, so that's good. Yeah. Yes. Can I ask, Hatch, uh, I always ask winemakers who who are Riesling people. And so for our listeners, you know, when you're talking about Watervale, that's really the the classic Clare Valley um, sort of sub-region and Flaxman would be the classic Eden Valley sub-region. So what are your kind of generic, can you take the listeners into what you imagine the different flavours are like from those two regions and why, please? 
Yes, it's obviously it's not absolutely clear. No, 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 but no, in no. a generic sense, yeah. yeah. But to me, Eden Valley is more perfume, so more mm. jasmine, aromatic. floral, really aromatic, really lifted, mm. and Claire and Waterville tends to be more lime and uh, orange blossom, those sort of characters, more citrus. Yeah, more pithy. More, yes, yeah. And, and Eden Valley... One of my heroes when I came into the industry was John Vickery. And, and Vickery. The legend. Vickery. Yeah, That's absolutely. It. And he was the guy that I was trying to beat in wine shows when I first came in because <laughs> he, he set such a high standard and, and he set the benchmark for the rest of us. He loved Flaxman's yeah. and he loved Watervale. Those yeah. two regions were, were his favourites. And interestingly, he used to blend the two together quite often. Yeah. So he got the, I guess, the floral lift from uh, Eden Valley or Flaxman's and then the structure from uh, Claire Waterville. Yeah. Which so is quite interesting. Yeah, which um, is what the Riesling Freak guys are doing now which with the 23, which I think is good. So, so John Vickery was working for Leo Buring, is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, so like absolutely iconic and legendary producer mm. when it comes to Riesling. Have you got a... Like a theory on, do you like to drink them young and then mid and then old in terms of Riesling, or do you do you, know, do you have a way that you like to drink them, Hatch? Generally, I, I love them aged. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. most most people don't see them as, very often as aged wines. Yeah. They don't understand them as as much as probably they should. But that's just the commercial reality that people buy mm. them young and drink them young. Look, they're fantastic young. You know, I mean, there's nothing better than fresh, vibrant, floral Riesling. Mm. Compared to Sauvignon Blanc, to me, there is, there's no comparison. It's just so much better than something like Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, and there's a lot of nuances and different characters, even within the, the, the sub-regions that I'm talking about yeah. with Flaxlands and, and Waterville. The differences are amazing. And... and um, through Wolf and Treasury, I saw a lot of Riesling in Clare because we own the Quiltala vineyards. Yes, and, uh, they're great vineyards. No, oh, they are. And the variations within those clinal and also, you know, your viticultural practice has huge influence on, yeah. on Riesling itself and, and the, the characters you get. So, yeah, uh, Vickery sent, set that standard around those two regions but also the, the fact of blending the two of them and yeah. uh, at Wolf Blast we used to do a gold label Riesling which was a blend of the two, yes. Claire and East Valley mm. yeah. and uh, those wines age exceptionally well yeah. um, <laughs> quite interestingly too um, most people probably wouldn't know this but Vickery used to always leave a little bit of sugar I'm talking you know, mm. a few grams yeah. of sugar in them just to, to give the mouthfeel, yep. but also that helps with the ageing of those wines. And they age incredibly well with that touch of sugar. Yeah. If mm. they're really dry and quite acid, they tend to be a little bit too lean yeah. and don't mm. age quite as well. So, yeah, yeah. no, I think it's, it's a fascinating variety and people look at it and think, oh, all Riesling's the same, but the nuances are, are amazing. They're terrific. I'm actually, I'm a very big fan of, it, of a good Riesling. And actually yesterday was having a, um, a lovely Napstein 2014. Um, beautiful. Wow. Like start, yeah, 2014 is probably one of my favourite vintages for Riesling. When I, yeah. When I've been, yeah, so um, do you do you remember that vintage clearly enough? Or? Uh, 14, not, not so much. Uh, 12, 
I really love 12. 2, 12 and 22, right? Yep, yep, definitely. 02 is a smashing good yeah. vintage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And still looks good. Um, yeah. But 12, 12 was really cool. Um, and actually, quite interestingly, 12 made really good red as well as Riesling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, a real winemaker's it, vintage. It was, it was all around just a lovely 11 and 12. I, th- I love those vintages. Yeah, definitely. Pretty much anything that I'm drinking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, it's, and obviously it was something like Riesling, but I think, you know, innovation in Australia with screw cap and the protection of the fruit mm. and, the, and the potential to age without the cork influencing it really has helped those old Rieslings. I mean, we've got O2s, O1s that are still stunning. Yeah. I've yeah. actually got a photo hatch that I love to show people. It's a classic Claire from Leasingham, 1976. Yeah. With a screw cap. Yep. But yep. with a cork and a yes. screw cap. So oh, Irish yeah. winemaker, Jill, to be sure, to be sure. I'm not sure <laughs> why they did it. But, like, the... No, the I'll tell you what. Yeah, please, go. So, Enlighten. That was when I started in the industry, and um, was that your first vintage two, hatch? Sorry, seventy six. It, it was at my Wolf Blast. Yes, uh, yeah. not at Wolf Blast. No. It was actually at Kaiser Stool. Oh, Kaiser Stool. Yeah, right. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first vintage with the training wheels off. I did did some <laughs> yeah. ferments in uh, 05, but the uh, seventy five. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, what happened? The Wine Research Institute in the late nineteen sixties did a research project on screw cap. And they came up with the fact that it was was better than than cork. Yeah. And uh, a guy called uh, Wall, Peter Wall, uh, was at Yalumba. He was the technical director there, and Yalumba used it, I think, in either '68 or '69. And they went by themselves, and uh, consumers didn't understand it. You know, <laughs> wine came in a bottle with a cork in it. Yeah. So after a couple of vintages not being successful, they started putting cork in there and putting a screw cap over the top so okay. that people would get used to the fact. So it literally was cap. just for a look. So it was just to like dupe people into thinking, oh, that is classic. Exactly. And, oh, and, and a few other people did it. Now, when in, in 2001, when Claire did it, the whole group went together. Yeah, they which did. Was the, which was the great success of that yeah. because yeah. everyone were wow, this is really good. They've really supported it and it's not one person out on their own. Yeah. And that was, it was sad that in a way, because when I came to the industry in the mid-70s, corks were terrible. They were shocking. And and we really had a really bad era from sort of the mid-70s to the mid-80s of, of just absolute rubbish cork. And, you know, if Screwcap had come in earlier, I think there would have been a much better thing that Oh and, yeah, uh, which didn't. also interesting. Someone like Colin Gramp, I believe, started planting those cork trees down there, yes, there next there to Jacobs are. Creek. I don't think anything ever came of it. But um, did we ever no, try I, and have a, a fledgling cork industry in this country? No, look, I, I guess from a, an investor's point of view, cork is not a great investment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It takes yeah. So long, but yeah, Colin. Uh, in fact. Um, what goes down to the, uh, which is now St. Hugo, Hugo yeah. yeah. there are cork trees down both sides of the road going down to that, which Colin uh, had planted. And that was the original uh, Orlando winery, the yeah. Grand Winery down there. And uh, so, yeah, they grow here. There's no problems with them growing, but it's just a matter of 
Econ- economies of scale yeah. and time. Yeah. Um, can I ask uh, Hatch, sorry, Jill, to take over a little bit there. Yeah. Where, when did you kick off at, uh, with Wolf Blast then? So I, I was a little, uh, I started at Kaiser School in uh, 1974. In 79, I went to Orlando. Yep. And I was there for eight, year, eight years. And then I came to Wolf Blast in December of 87. Right. So, so yeah, 35 years. Yeah, wow. that's am- wow. amazing stuff. Because uh, some of those, some of those old uh, eighty-two black label, seventy-six black label, oh. <sighs> phenomenal wines. So just you know, it's, it's quite quite interesting. I, I had a chat with you and Hook uh, on Thursday, yeah. and we were talking about exactly that. That when Blast started, uh, he and Johnny started off. People were saying that, oh, Wolf Blast wine's fantastic young, but they don't age at all. You know, they're too soft. <laughs> the, the tannins are soft. They won't last. And, and good commercial wines, but won't last. We did, did a tasting of Black Label, uh, all vintages back to 73 uh, a couple of years ago. 73 is still fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And Jimmy uh, Watson winner, wasn't it? 73? Yeah, they are 73, 74, and 75 all won the Watson. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, and the, and and again in oh, another vintage one again. I can't yeah, remember. 1998. So yeah. I didn't find that one. Yeah, yeah. Catch <laughs> <laughs> well for the win. 98 black. Like, yeah, but they're great wines. I actually had dinner with Ben Glatzer on on Tuesday night, and yep. you know that sort of. I don't know. I don't know if it was you were telling me the story. Someone told me a story that Johnny Glatzer was on the tasting bench with all these different samples, and someone went down and. So which one's Langhorn Creek at Cabernet and Shred? He's like, I don't know. I just blend the bloody things, you know? Yeah. No, well, I, I, I probably did tell you that story. Yeah. So my story, Wolf, Wolf Blast, is I went there to learn how to make red. So when I was at Orlando and Kaiser School, I'd built a reputation of, of being, you know, a good, good white wine maker. And uh, so I went to Blast because they were winning everything and I wanted to, to learn what they were doing with red. And about the second or third day, John was doing his black label uh, classification tasting. So he had probably about 150 wines around the tasting bench, uh, tasting and deciding what they were. And I thought, wow, how's this? Second or third day, I'm going to learn exactly what Glatzer does and I can sell myself to the industry as knowing all about red and all about white. So... John was about a third of the way down the bench and uh, he said, oh, you know, start down the end. So, I, you know, I grew up with science background. I thought, well, OK, when I do a tasting, I do the lightest wines first to the heaviest and I do it by regions yeah. and variety. Mm-hmm. So I look at all the Kenora Cabernets together. I look at all the Barossa Shiraz together. So I, I look down at the first wine and it's labelled 49 <laughs> and then the next one's 62. And then 75 and then 10. <laughs> Completely randomised down the bench and no varietal and no regional descriptors. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, this is interesting. And if you know John, he's a bit of a quirky guy. And I sort of looked down the bench and I'm, I'm new in the business, so I didn't want to look like I was a bit stupid, <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to find out what's going on. So I looked down the bench and I said, hey, John, where are the Coonawarra Cabernets, mate? And he said don't know and don't really care. Geez, <laughs> I'm going to learn well here. Anyway, so I tasted the, in, in those days, we pointed out a 20, so I pointed them all out of 20, went down, round, went to his office afterwards and uh, sat down with him and he said, oh, what did you think of the first line? And I said, oh, I thought it was probably a Langhorn Creek Cabernet and I gave it 17 and a half. 
and he looked at me and he said, you pointed them, did you? What did you do that for? <laughs> and, and I was like, no, this is, this is a disaster. And I hope that's out of 20. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but, but what John had done, and this was a fantastic learning exercise for yeah. me, what Johnny had done was that first one was a Langhorne Creek Cabernet, and he'd given it Grey Label Plus. Yeah. And all of the wines he went along, he didn't care what they were. No. He looked at them as, what does the consumer think of that wine? Where does it fit? Classification, within the yeah. Plus, call it. yeah. Yeah. And I thought, that is smart. Yeah. Because that's yeah. how you put wines together. You don't, as a winemaker, we always think from the vineyard on. He was thinking as the consumer back. So smart. So very, uh, very ahead of his time when it came to that, in fact. And, I mean, Definitely. Uh, you know, when you talk to Peter Gago about organoleptically making grains, that's what they do, right? It's that's, that's become the thing to do now, how to blend a wine. You don't know what the components are. You just make the best of the best of the best. Yep. But to do that in the 70s that's, or 80s, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, he, uh, yeah. Good luck or or intelligence, I'm not sure, but it worked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris, I've got one for you. So you say you've done 50 vintages, which is so impressive. I would love to hear what was your, personally, your best vintage and your worst vintage. <laughs> uh, the worst is 2011, for sure. Uh, yeah. It was a disaster. I've never rejected so much fruit in all my life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I basically spent the whole vintage just going into vineyards and saying, look, sorry, we can't take it. Um, yeah. And that was their own vineyards plus growers. So Devastating. Well, that, yeah. that was a disaster. Best vintage, I'd have to say 76, my first one. Um, I had, and, and this is luck, or luck, uh, whether it's uh, good, good skills as well as luck, but... First wine show, Brisbane Wine Show, 1976. Uh, I think out of seven entries, had six gold medals and a silver, and one best white wine, a best young white wine of the, the vintage. And I thought, geez, this is an easy game. <laughs> <laughs> but I, look, every vintage is different. Every vintage is, uh, and that's the good thing about wine is, no matter what, you can't just do it by recipe. Yeah, and it no. comes down. No. Down so to what you were talking about, Richard, is it's about what it tastes like. It's yeah. what the fruit tastes like. It's making a decision in the vineyard about what can I do to maximise the quality of what I've got here. Yeah. And and to me, that is – I probably spend more time thinking about that than actually, you know, the the end result. It's, yeah. it's more in that, you know, how can I get the absolute best out of what I've got? Yeah. Uh, and, I was very lucky uh, quite recently, Hatch, to taste 50 Redmond Cabernets in a row from 1970 wow. to 2021. And my set of expectations, you know, uh, you always know, well, okay, 1990 is going to be the vintage, 98 is going to be the vintage, all that stuff. And your yeah. 2000s, your 97s, your 85s, your 83s, and they're going to be the, the – but in fact it was flipped around. The script on that was that quite a lot of those, in inverted commas, off vintages – showed much better than we thought. And the comment yep. I made in the room with all of the wine journals was, let's not poo-poo 2023 too quickly as well, guys, because yep. we know it was tough. Let's make sure we yep. get a look at what's in the glass. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, look, I think there's a really good comparison. If you look at uh, 98, I said that after 98 Vintage when we finished it, yep. I said this is the best vintage I'd ever seen. Mm. Yeah. And, and the wines were just opulent, they just powerful, yeah. and they're still fantastic wines. 
But then 99 came along and they weren't as powerful. Like, and we just basically wrote it off. You know, yeah. this, this is never going to be as good. Yeah. We did the same in 04 and 05. Yes. 04s were fantastic. 05, we said, no. If you actually look at the 99s and the 05s, they're both fantastic now. And yeah. So, Probably more elegant and yeah, they just yeah, don't have that exactly. big power here. And it's the same what Richo and I speak about. We're so in agreement on this is that, um, like, we love, like, a 2016 uh, Barros and Shiraz, but give me a 17. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's still <laughs> yeah. got the beautiful behind it, but it's just yeah. slightly more elegant. So I think that that seems to be, it seems to be a bit of a, tra a trait that if when he had a crack of vintage, the year after it, unless something goes horribly wrong, the year after it can actually be extremely good and just elegant. Okay, here's, here's something that's, that sounds extremely stupid, but if you go back <laughs> over history, it's quite true. Yeah. Okay. Generally, the even-numbered vintages have been the better vintages. Yeah. Right. And the odds tended to be not as good. Now, obviously, then you've got to overlay, you know, drought and all those things over the top of it. But it, it is relatively consistent that the the even numbers are the better vintages. And if you look at most uh, fruits, so things like peaches and nectarines and stuff, yeah. they have a heavy crop one year and a lighter crop the following year. And that's why you prune them to try to even that out. Yeah. And I think by nature, grapes may be the same. That and, and generally those, like 98 was actually quite a big crop. Yes. It wasn't It wasn't a small crop. It wasn't a huge crop, but it was average or Solid, above average. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's something in that that, that uh, those odd years tended to be the more elegant, uh, not as powerful as the even vintages. And... Uh, but, yeah, I think if you go through the, the late 80s, we had drought uh, and and same in the 2000s. You know, the, the drought really has a big impact across the top of that. But yeah. if, you, if you look at the really good ones, uh, yeah, the, the even ones tend to be better. It's interesting. And and before we let you go, Hatch, and we could we could literally, Jill and I were just sort of saying before, we could do this all day. Uh, so yeah. we're, so, we're so lucky to have someone like you on the show. But... I can't let you go without asking you, how's the jag going, mate? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, did I, last time I spoke to you, was it finished? No, it wasn't quite finished last time we no, spoke. Well, so. Yeah, no, I've got it on the road. It looks magnificent. If you go and uh, check out my Instagram or Facebook or anything, it's on there. Right. It, uh, <laughs> I showed it at the uh, last year, at the end of last year, showed it at the Jag Club uh, annual event and it got the best car of show. Of course it did. Of course it did. Yeah. The, very dapper, very wonderful winemaking, Jag restoring. Chris <laughs> Hatcher, who's now got his own wine wine label, Hatch Wines. Uh, mate, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Don't be a stranger we'll Absolutely. get you on again soon after the release oh, definitely thanks for having us and uh have a great sunday